Hello, it's Carson Stuhle. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his weekly appearance. It's his weekly Friday appearance, we'll call it. We'll call it a weekly Friday appearance. He's lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs.com. It's Kyle McDaniel. Uh, in this edition of the podcast, as he does in every one of his appearances on the program, uh, Kyle McDaniel endeavors to analyze all prospects. Of particular note this week, we consider some debuts. It, uh, it being September, there are a number of them. Among those debuts, we find uh, uh, CJ, or now Carl Edwards, it would appear, uh, formerly a prospect in the Rangers system, now a Cub. He's moved to relief in the meantime. Ask Kylie about the other Matt Duffy. Other Matt Duffy is a corner infielder in the Houston system, uh, not in the San Francisco system. They were both, uh, however, late-run picks, and both have made their way to the major leagues, which is improbable enough, which is improbable enough. And finally, uh, Max Kepler, Jimmer Morn uh, prospect. How does this level of competition hitherto potentially inform the, uh, his ceiling. Is he further from it? Is he closer to it? Is it lowered somehow by that? All that's considered. Uh, also, we consider a different sort of prospect, not the on-field sort, but the GM sort. The Milwaukee Brewers this past week hired Houston Astros assistant general manager David Stearns uh, as their GM. What are the implications of that hiring? Also, what does what is what is the role of, a, of an assistant general manager? Kyla McDaniel uh, answers that ably as well and perhaps uh, raises more questions uh, and then provides answers in the meantime. That conversation is to follow very shortly. Following even more shortly is a message from the sponsor. I'm delivering the message. The sponsor in this case is Draft, the Draft app. Are you, listener, are you familiar with DraftKings or, or FanDuel? Are you familiar with those sorts of things? Those are daily fantasy sports games. Draft is also a daily, for, uh, fanny, daily fantasy sports game. Notable, however, in that it has been uh, designed expressly for mobile devices. What you do is quite simple. You challenge anyone who has an account in the entire uh, draft universe by way of a snake draft. You each select five players. Those five players accrue fantasy points. One of you wins, one of you loses. Although one could argue that you both win because you've been given the opportunity to participate in the delicious drama of this fantasy event. You're the sort of person who would like to wager real American currency. You're also able to do that. And would you like to do it uh, for other sports besides baseball? That is also an option. For example, NFL football. One of the most very famous kinds of football, college football, another popular sort. And then uh, when the season begins, NBA, NBA basketball. What an assortment of thrills and delights. That's the sort of thing that the draft app promises you. How do I get it? You're definitely asking now. Uh, by means of the App Store for iOS and also uh, Google Play if you have some sort of Android device. And maybe another thing besides Google Play. I only use Google Play for apps, but it probably there are other means to acquire apps for Android phones. I don't need to know it, however, because I'm an older person and I found the way I like it and that's how I do. Okay, so that is what? That is the draft app. I've told you about that. I've also told you uh, previously about the guest today. It is, uh, it is, uh, what do we have? What do we have? It's Fangraphs Audio featuring my prospect analyst, Kyla McDaniel. And when does it begin, this program? Shortly. The answer is shortly because first we hear a musical interlude Provided by Kyla McDaniel, which musical interlude begins right now. Kyla, would you like to talk about some debuts? You know I would. Okay. Uh, let's talk about a player who has not... Let's talk about a player who has not made his debut, I believe, officially, but will whose debut is imminent, I guess, and that's that's German-born Max Kepler. That is not his full name. Oh, is it? Not. <laughs> is it not? 
<laughs> yeah, I, I can look it up. Uh, but yes, it is much longer than that. All right. Well, why when you form? Why do you formulate some thoughts about him while I look it up? Oh, I gotta wait. Do that. It's Maximilian. Yeah, but there's like a middle name. There's like a hyphenated oh. last name. There's like a lot of stuff going on. Okay. Yeah. Um. Yeah, no, I like him. I saw him a little bit this year. He was on that uh, loaded Chattanooga team that had uh, Jose Barrios and Byron Buxton and Miguel Sano and him and uh, shortstop Polanco and Adam Brett Walker and Stuart Turner. Like, they had a lot of guys that were on that list uh, and some high ones. Uh, he's all, I've always liked him, uh, mainly because when a guy like him has some tools, it's all 50s and 55s, and he can perform – and is, you know, from a background where he didn't play baseball for a long time, uh, you give him the benefit of the doubt. Because a lot of times you'll see, you know, football player that only played baseball a couple months out of the year his whole life, and he'll be a little slow to pick up on stuff. And this guy picked up pretty quickly, given how, you know, how little high-level reps he had coming to America. He was basically getting his reps in pro ball. Uh, and then this year, I think some things clicked for him at the plate, and he was able to sort of tap into those, you know, 50 and 55 tools. I don't think there's a six. Uh, I'd say he's probably a fringy center fielder that settles and left because I guess it isn't. It, it might be a 50 arm. It's probably a little more fringy. So I guess it isn't all 50s and 55s. I guess the arm's a little fringe. Uh, but I mean, I guess the upside would be he could hit, you know, 270 with 20 homers and play left field and be pretty athletic and, you know, that's pretty good. Uh, but the reason he wasn't called up earlier this year when he was raking to AAA or to the big leagues is there still a little bit of trouble with uh, some spin, some stuff off the plate, like the stuff that you would expect to improve markedly in the big leagues? Because, uh, you know, the velocity may be similar to what it was in AA. You're facing a lot of mid-90s relievers. Uh, but, yeah, the location of the breaking ball, the sequencing, the command, all that kind of stuff gets better. And that's the kind of stuff he struggled with, some, you know, somewhat predictably, because you would expect him not to be fantastic at that. Uh, maybe he will be. Maybe he'll never improve. Maybe he'll just be like a fourth outfielder. I don't know, but that's sort of the range of possibilities, I would say. Sort of fifth outfielder or fourth outfielder to above average everyday guy that probably plays left. Right, but maybe that sort of, uh, that sort of breed of player who's playing an above average defensive left field. Yeah, so if, yeah, if he ends up being like that Nori Aoki guy, I mean, obviously not the same sort of body, but if like the production ends up being, you know, 260, 270 with some walks and 10 or 12 homers, he could probably still be an everyday guy. There's is another it, guy like that that actually just got called it Michael Reed with the Brewers that oh, yeah. his, his weakness is it's like 50 raw power that kind of plays more to a 45. Uh, but he's also like probably a right fielder, but could probably play center if you need him to. Uh, a little more advanced with the bat, but it's like, I remember some of the Brewers guys used Aoki as an example, so when it came to mind, they were saying, he could be the 45 power, 12 to 15 homers every day right fielder because he does all this other stuff so well. Well, I feel like the, I feel, I mean, obviously this is a, a model that's become quite popular over the last, uh, three, five, perhaps more years, I don't know precisely. And, and the Giants have won, uh, multiple World Series fielding players like Angel Pagan and Gregor Blanco in their outfield, neither of whom, I mean, with the exception maybe of, you know, above average speed, are, I mean, they're certainly not hitting for a lot of power. And, well, and to a degree, it applies to their infield with guys like Matt Duffy and Joe Panic and Brandon Crawford, where it's sort of a speed and defense and contact sort of thing, as opposed to the more conventional, like, well, does he profile? Does he have above average power? Now he can play on a corner. Like, right. I guess with the whole steroids being cracked down on, that isn't a thing anymore. Yeah, although, um, well, Panic showed early power before getting injured, and I think Crawford, Crawford's hit a bunch of home runs this year, hasn't he? Did Joe's loss of power cause you some Joe's anxiousness? <laughs> <laughs> no, don't do it. <laughs> I didn't do it. 
Go do it. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna let the audience go from. Uh, <laughs> I took them from A to Y. They got to go from Y to C. Wait, just one. One. Uh, well, maybe I'll, I'll have a follow-up question about Max Kepler in a little bit because you brought up a point about um, co- early competition that might be uh, that might be worth something. Uh, so I will table that for the moment. Maybe uh, you did. Brown to till. Yeah, you you invoked uh, you invoked the name Matt Duffy. Uh, notably, the other Matt Duffy uh, de- debuted. Uh, I believe debuted this week, or at least. Uh, um, nearly within the last week, and the other Matt Duffy is okay as well. Yeah, it's not bad. Yeah, I, and, and maybe a bit similar, I think, because I think he is he not also uh, some sort of uh, is, he's a, he's a corner infielder, isn't he? Yeah, bigger dude. I'd say not as much defensive versatility, but uh, yeah, probably a little more power, um, and obviously not not a huge prospect. Although I had. Uh, the, the good Matt Duffy as I think a 40 plus or a 45 coming in the year and mm-hmm. he basically turned into a 60. Uh, so I think I'm done trying to tell you exactly what Matt Duffy's are going to turn out to be. Yeah, it's, it's been, a, it's been a ripe territory this year. And, and of course, uh, that, that Matt Duffy is doing it. He's what? The, the, let's see, Giants Matt Duffy. Uh, On Fangraphs, they are Matt Duffy and the Astros one is Matthew Duffy. Matthew Maybe Duffy, we could use yeah. that as a, as a code. Actually, I don't know if you've noticed that this happens sometimes. Well, of course, you probably look up quite a few prospect names on the site. Is frequently you will find the the sort of more the formal longer name uh, assigned to prospects, like and, Gregory Bird. Like yeah, right, like Gregory Bird. And sometimes it's preserved. I think like I think the site still has Nicholas Tropiano um, and Zachary Davies. But eventually the um, it eventually, it's uh, becomes the the sort of more familiar name if that is in fact what the player uses. I actually asked Appleman about that, mm-hmm. and uh, he actually instructed me like, "Oh, just make a sheet with the uh, the correct names and the player IDs, and we'll get them fixed." So yeah, maybe these will get fixed. Maybe they will get fixed. I believe we actually, I believe this site has not uh, transferred over to Chichi Gonzalez from Alex Gonzalez. That was the first one I brought up, and I think he changed it because for some reason I would even search for Chi-Chi and it wouldn't come up in the search bar, and I was like, I can't even find him unless I go find an article that's linked to him. Oh, yeah, it is Chi-Chi now, isn't it? I would like to – will you please verify? It's not racist calling him Chi-Chi, right? He's fine with it? For, from my understanding, yeah, it's proliferated <laughs> enough. I, I think if he thought it was racist, he would have said something. Okay, like I just want – I just – I've always been hesitant to say, okay, I'll just call him Alex because yeah, <laughs> everyone's calling him Chi-Chi and he's okay with it. That's yeah. That's my okay. understanding. Plus, there's also been like uh, that was actually came up at lunch today. Is how there's like seven guys named Tyler Green. Uh, there's also like seven guys named Alex Gonzalez, and more than Tyler Greens, and most of them are shortstops. Right, and I think alternate spellings of Green too. Right, we have some with yeah. E. And I know the Alex Gonzalez's came with middle initials, uh, but I yeah I don't remember which ones are which. Right, it was very confusing when it was uh, when it was the both of them. Um, uh, one of them, the one with the Marlins, was known as the Sea Bass, which I still don't know why, but at least helped that some people would just call him the Sea Bass. Okay, so so Matt Duffy, Matt Duffy versus Matthew Duffy, Matthew Duffy, perhaps what we think less defensively is that is that possible? Yeah, less defensively, a little more pop. He's also 26 and was in AAA the last two years. So I think that kind of gives you a shorthand for generally how the industry thinks about his sort of potential in general. Right. Uh, uh, it should be noted, Matt and Matthew, that's the Giants and the Astros version, uh, 18th and 20th round picks, respectively. Yeah. So there you are. That is From good. All right. Tennessee and Long Beach State. Okay. That was uh, those two Matt Duffies. Uh, let's see. Let's yeah. move on to the third, fourth, and fifth Matt Duffy's, and then we can uh, move on to another topic. Yeah. No, we're not going to do that, I guess. Uh, here's a, here's another one. Uh, Carl Edwards, also known as C.J. Edwards. 
Yes. Um, although maybe he's adopted Carl now. I don't know. Well, yeah, he has, but that's also the name of the, one of the more popular NASCAR drivers. So this one also is <laughs> riddled with possible errors. And if I'm not mistaken, this uh, this pitcher, Edwards, is from one of the Carolinas, which is uh, South Carolina, yes. Yeah, right, uh, which is very popular NASCAR territory. That's true. And he also has a very unique story because he was, I'm going to go off the top of my head, I believe he was a 48th-round pick. That signed for fifty thousand dollars. Not like a South draft Carolina. and follow though. He wasn't like a draft and follow guy. He was actually a forty eighth round pick. Yeah, but he was yeah. a, he was a high school player. And as far as I know, the Rangers area scout that signed him, I believe, was a former college coach that had recruited him. And I don't think any of the other teams knew about him. And so they they knew they could take him late and sign him for fifty grand. And he wasn't a guy for a year or two. And then all of a sudden he's just like, oh, now he's hitting ninety six with a plus curveball. Uh, now he's a guy. And then he got traded in that Matt Garza deal pretty soon after he became a guy. Right, and, uh, well, depending on how you think of it, may or may not have worked out for Texas, I believe, right? It was, the, um, it was involved in the Olt. Was Mike Olt involved in that trade as well? Yeah, I think it was Olt and uh, Neil Ramirez, oh, and yeah. I think there was a fourth player also. Bunch of talent. Was Ronald Torres involved in that? Uh, no. He's been, he's been no. Traded, traded in other cases. And uh, who was coming back from the Cubs? I assume it was someone of a larger profile. Because it was Matt Garza. Matt Garza. Oh yes, of course. Yeah, thank you. Uh, the uh, so what was interesting when that trade happened? As you noted, he had just become a guy. He was putting up. Um, he was striking out like a third of batters um, at you know at an age appropriate level. He did he did that as well when he joined the Cubs. Um, he, in the last two seasons, though, have been rougher for him. Um, in, he's getting some swings and misses, but I don't think he's posted. And of course, this is uh, what do they call this stat? Stat scouting? Am I, what am I doing? Scouting, scouting the stat line. I'm scouting the stat line. Or I am scouting. scouting I'm not really scouting it. I'm reciting it. <laughs> um, but uh, he, he's walking a lot more people is the basic idea. Do you have any sense? Was this always something that was a concern? Um, this, not the, really. When he was a starter, the concern was he's super duper. Like he's listed at 6'2", 155. Uh, and usually that's the kind of guy where you'll, you'll embellish the weight a little bit. And he, he, was, he was like pretty clean arm, pretty good uh, – uh, delivery, the changeable sh- and command will show you average enough, and then the fat or the curveball is 55 or 60. The fastball is up to 96. It's usually a 55 or 60, and so the yeah the kind of report was if you know he can sort of gain a little weight and get a little more durable, then he could be a guy that could be a, you know third fourth starter, and was you know close and you know athletic and loose and all those sorts of things you want to see. And the cur- a beautiful curveball. Yes. Yeah. And the beautiful curveball. Um. And then there was obviously concerns he could end up being a reliever because if you can't throw 180, 200 innings, it doesn't matter how good your stuff is. If you know you can't go deep in the game or deep into the season, then you know the starter traits don't matter anymore. Uh, and I, I usually with pitchers like you'll see Kyle Crick, uh, Frankie Montes, guys that throw really hard that everyone's like, oh, that's a reliever. It'll be years after people kind of give up, like uh, he can't be a starter, like over it's still usually a year after that until the team actually does it and this time i was ready to give edwards another year or two and the cubs moved to the bullpen this year so i don't know if that's because there's sort of a window of contentions coming up or maybe they knew something sort of medically or physically that i didn't know about the his you know odds of being able to you know stay healthy you know that deep into a season or into a game uh and they moved to relief and yeah uh, from the people i talked to like yeah stuff's pretty much the same uh, might be a little more effort, you know, a little more sort of walks, might be an adjustment for him to, instead of going, you know, first six innings to going, you know, last inning or two. I think it's more just sort of adjusting to the role as opposed to becoming a different player. Right. And, and, uh, so no, no great concerns with regard to what appears to be some, uh, control, if not necessarily command issues. 
Yeah, and obviously the strikeouts jump as you would expect. Uh, and he's only thrown like 50 innings. So it's, you know, his basically one season of doing relief stuff. You'd hope the Walker would be around three, uh, but it's around six. And the Cubs called him up, so you would think they're not super con- – I mean, if it was something where they asked him to do something and he wasn't doing it, they wouldn't call him up. Like, that's usually how you handle that sort right. of development question. Uh, and since they moved him to the bullpen, that would make me think that's what they think the long-term fit is. Like, this this seems to be the way they wanted this to play out, is for him to be a bullpen piece in 2016. Like, okay. the, this, this is the way you would achieve that if that's where you thought it was going to end up. You might as well get – I guess in some ways I would commend them because there's a lot of situations where you either leave a shortstop playing that position when he shouldn't be or, you know, won't be in the big leagues as long as you can, and then all of a sudden the guy has to learn third base in a year in AAA. It's like, well, if you think he's going to be there, then put him there. But I think there's sort of like a trade value thing. And I think the Cubs are basically like, we're not going to trade this guy. He's going to be a reliever. Like, we're not going to ruin the rotation. We're not sure he can necessarily do that. Let's, you know, get on with it, which I think I advocate for more than it happens. So I guess there's also some kudos to be handed out if this ends up working out. Okay. Uh, let me ask you another question. Uh, I think it's been it's been a little bit, actually, since we talked. I think we might have missed a week. I'm sure it's my fault. Uh, positive it's my fault. Have you been able to um, to lay eyes on any on any prospects in the meantime? Uh, I was about to. There was the the Southern League Double A uh, playoff series were happening, and uh, it was Montgomery was playing Chattanooga, who are both near me in one semifinal, and then Biloxi and Pensacola were playing each other. And I had just seen Chattanooga and Montgomery recently, so I was waiting for the finals because uh, both teams had guys I wanted to see. I wanted to see Cody Reed and and uh, Jesse Winker on Pensacola, and then Milwaukee's team Biloxi. They had Jorge Lopez and Adrian Hauser. Who right, and let, let me uh, sorry interject just for clarity's sake. Those are Reds prospects, uh, batter Jesse Winker and pitcher Cody Reed, who was yes. acquired from the Royals, right? Yeah, and he was sort of the – I guess you, him and Finnegan were the two sort of centerpieces of the Cueto trade. And I saw Finnegan in AAA uh, a couple weeks back. So, And Reed's velocity and all the stuff had sort of jumped this year. So it seemed like a good time to check him out. Uh, yeah, and then Biloxi was the double-A for the Brewers, and they had Jorge Lopez, who had improved this year, Hauser, who was acquired in the Carlos Gomez trade. And then they also had uh, Brett Phillips from the sort of centerpiece of the Carlos Gomez trade, along with Orlando Arcia, who I think I put in the top ten of all minor league prospects. Uh, and I had seen all of these guys at least once before. It's not like I had to, but I was like, oh, whichever one of those teams gets through and plays the team close to me, I'll go see them match up with the team close to me. And then it turned out Biloxi matched up with them, and they threw the two pitchers in the first two games. <laughs> and then uh, and then there was another pitcher I wanted to see, and then I had seen that entire lineup, including Michael Reed and some other guys, uh, last year when they were in Brevard, and then my schedule kind of... Got a little uh, messier. So all that to say, I didn't go to a game. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I almost did, and there were a bunch of guys I wanted to see. What are uh, what are amateur players doing right now? I, it's, this is usually the start of the school year. Or it hasn't it yeah. hasn't started long ago. Is that uh, is this a little bit of a of a down a down yeah. period for amateur? Yeah, like end of August to mid-October is sort of school and nothing else. There's a couple, like, smaller time tournaments. There's an Evo – Evo Shield has a tournament out in Arizona that I think was last week. And it's mostly – you know, I'd say maybe half or two-thirds of sort of the bigger guys out west will go to that. Uh, so that's a good place to identify maybe if there's a guy out west that didn't go to area codes that may be emerging. That's sometimes a guy or two will pop up there. Uh, but yeah, there isn't like necessarily a huge sort of national event going on. And then in late October is when we have Jupiter, uh, the big, uh, the big travel team tournament that's sort of a national event where you got probably three, four hundred scouts, 
a couple hundred college coaches going around on the 16 backfields uh, in Jupiter. And the week before that, you have a Diamond Club, which is the Florida and Puerto Rico uh, sort of weekend showcase for basically all the players. Basically, everybody goes to that in Florida and Puerto Rico that's of any note draft-wise, and maybe a pitcher or two will sit out if they're sort of letting their arm rest. But you basically get all the guys. And this year, Florida and Puerto Rico especially are stronger than they've been. So it's another sort of big event that kind of leads into Jupiter. Where, where does where does the Diamond Club uh, Florida? Uh, it's in Lakeland, like right in the middle of the state. And then Jupiter's down uh, about an hour north of Miami right. in the southeast area. So okay. you can easily go from one to the other. And then the uh, last year, in between those two events, is when I saw a lot of the July 2 crop for the first time, the uh, DPL. Uh, usually tries to find scouts that have a little downtime in Florida between those two events. And I believe they're having an event like the two days before Jupiter uh, where their sort of top guys are going to come uh, work out for scouts. And so that'll be my first look at a lot of the July 2 guys if they weren't at some of the underclassmen stuff last February when I was in the Dominican. And this past year, I mean, there were, I don't know, at least 10 or 12 millionaires in that group. And this year probably won't be quite as good because uh, I think last year was a bit of an aberration. But Still getting, you know, four or five days of that at last year's event, four or five days of all these guys playing in games. I think this coming up year, I think it's just a couple of days, but it's enough to kind of get familiar with them. Because I was saying the problem with the thing they do in February in the Dominican is it's you kind of get to see everybody like take one BP, one infield, play for a game or two where they get a couple at bats each time and then get pulled late. And it's just, you know, kind of a real limited look. So getting a little more, a couple more data points for context makes it a lot easier, especially when they're 16 and things are changing so rapidly. What um and then and then uh, after that you said that some of those uh, amateur events are in mid October. Uh, after that, uh, I would guess that you have uh, win- uh, fall and winter leagues to to concern yourself with, including the Arizona Fall League. Yeah, instructs have uh, started, and uh, that's sort of especially when I'll be in Florida. If there's any downtime, that'll be a good thing to go catch games around noon at all the uh, spring training uh, event, uh, all the spring training complexes or stadiums. Uh, and those, I mean, we've talked about that before, but that's its own sort of deal where you, depending on the team, you might get a roster of 50 players and at any given time there might only be 20, 25 players mm-hmm. at the field, but then there'll be, you know, 10 players on the backfields working on stuff that aren't going to play in the games. Uh, certain teams like Pittsburgh will bring in 30 guys for the first couple weeks and then send them out and bring in like another 30 guys. Uh, and so it's, it's a very, it's a very good place to get first looks and get sort of the vibe of a player. But if you're used to like going to a minor league field and watching BP and infield a few times and watching five games and like highly structured and everyone's at the same level, it's not really like that. It's, it's much more of sort of a, a wild west of development where everybody's working on a certain thing and only the teams keep stats, but even the stats aren't super indicative unless maybe you've, You've got a guy that you wonder if he'll make contact and he faces a bunch of guys his level or higher and, you know, gets a bunch of hits. That's usually a good thing. But like pitcher numbers, it's, you know, not that useful. And that's also where the July 2 guys get to debut because they sign contracts for the next season. Uh, so this so this is the sort of first non-regular season sort of camps that are happening. So you'll hear – you'll probably see some tweets and stuff from Arizona of guys like Yadier Alvarez with the Dodgers that got all that money, I think $16 million. Uh, him and then all the Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Wander Javier, Jalen Ortiz, all those 16-year-old kids. This will also be the first thing where they'll kind of be scouted in America. Was it uh, was it Edward Rodriguez, the Eduardo, sorry, Eduardo Rodriguez, the the left-hander with Boston? Wasn't he sort of an um, instructional league uh, find? As, some, as somehow it was someone whose velocity had spiked over just like a course of 10 innings, uh, and you had heard this anecdote about him. 
Uh, well, he, yeah, his velocity spiked at the end of last year, right before he got traded. He had, I think, I want to say like six or seven starts for the Red Sox, or who's throwing harder, mm-hmm. or sorry, for the Orioles, and then he got traded. And the big question was, will he be able to continue that? And I guess the answer was a resounding yes. I think even it started throwing even harder than that. Um, yeah, well, yeah, the, uh, last year we talked about Jason Garcia, the uh, Rule 5 pick, another guy from the uh, Red Sox to the Orioles. That was uh, that was sort of the star of the Orioles evaluating prospects list last year because he was the guy coming off of Tommy John that threw hard as a reliever late in the season when he came back and then went to instructs and hit 100 a bunch of times. Uh, but because it was sort of a closed environment where nobody knew the stats, n- no scout was staying long enough to see him throw multiple times, I think the Red Sox said they could slide him through and nobody would pick him. But the uh, sort of problem, which, as I wrote in the uh, in the evaluating prospects piece, was the Oriole, like the way you do instructs and the way you do the GCL in Florida, since all of the teams are sort of hours apart from each other, is you'll play in a pod of all the teams near you. And so it worked out that a bunch of his outings, I think like two-thirds of them, ended up being against the Orioles, and the Orioles had like a static camera they just set up to record all the games. Mm-hmm. So they had video of like 10 of his 12 instructional beginnings, and so they could thus see all of his strikeouts and what pitches he was throwing and have statistics and basically all the stuff the Red Sox were probably counting on no one having or no one paying attention to. It worked out because they were playing the local teams that one of the local teams was paying attention. Yeah, and uh, he actually has uh, – he's pitched almost 30 innings this year for uh, for Baltimore. Not uh, very impressive, although – I guess he's sitting around 93 with a fastball, so uh, perhaps there's something there um, to offer. Yeah, especially team. especially for basically for free to get a reliever that uh, you could get the rights to, and probably I would imagine they'll send him to Double A for next year to try to get everything straightened out. But yeah, seems seems like it's worth the flyer. Right. Uh, let me. Can I ask you a couple of follow up questions with some of the the debutantes uh, we were discussing? No. What, no. <laughs> Uh, let me rephrase. Next topic. Let me rephrase. I'm going to ask you some follow-up <laughs> questions. Uh, um, one of one of them you you mentioned with regard to Max Kepler. One of the sort of advantages to Max Kepler, the the compelling qualities uh, to, of Max Kepler as a prospect, is uh, in addition to having a sort of uh, you know, a variety of average tools, any of which one could you know improve. Um, he also was able to develop um, these skills and his skills and his tools against he, – he developed them against um, a sort of lower grade of competition probably. And so you think that um, relative to, say, a, a guy who's playing in Florida or California and is constantly playing the highest, uh, you know, the highest level of competition, um, he had, he might have uh, more room for growth. And I'm curious as to, first of all, I guess, what do we know – I mean, who did Max Kepler play against? I mean, as someone who grew – he grew up in Berlin, Germany, right? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. It was some, somewhere in Germany. Both of his parents were in the ballet. Seems to be everyone's favorite anecdote about him. Right. And what is, so what is, uh, so who, who, what, who has he been playing? I mean, who would a player like that, uh, what's his competition look like? Well, MLB has academies there, uh, where, as far as I understand, it's sort of like, uh, you know, come for the weekend, come for a tournament, you know, come for maybe a showcase for the European scouts, as in the European scouts for big league teams. Uh, they'll be basically like sort of events. So I would think of it more of like uh, not necessarily a high school team, but more like if there was like a uh, like hitting academy near your house where you kind of pop in and get some work when you had extra time. It's I think it's more like that. Uh, and you know that he was I think he's the only guy that signed for anything over. Actually, you know there was the Italian kid Gasparini that the uh, Martin Gasparini signed for I think one point five I want to say or one point three something like that with the Royals. Uh, before that, Kepler was the only guy to sign for anything like into the significant seven figures. I think he got like eight fifty something like that. 
Um, so yeah, there weren't other players of that caliber to play against. Uh, and so I know I've talked to guys that have gone to those events and they're like, yeah, this guy was like good body, projectable, good arm, but he was like 77, 82 and he's 15. It's like, I don't, I don't know what to do with that. Like that doesn't compare to anything I've seen before. I know he hasn't thrown a lot, so maybe he'll be throwing 87, 89 next year, but I can't sign a guy throwing in the low 80s. So I guess we'll wait and see. And there's a guy, I remember the, when I was with the Pirates, he signed a guy named Nevorowskis from, I want to say Croatia or somewhere in sort of the Eastern European countries that threw a hundred at one point. Uh, and I think he was one of the guys that was like high eighties and projectable and hadn't thrown a lot. And he just, you know, eventually the velocity kept coming. Um, he hasn't kind of, you know, isn't a huge prospect. He hasn't worked out all the other stuff yet, but he's just throwing hard pretty quickly. Um, so yeah, it's, it's like playing, uh, I don't know, like a low level high school team or a JV team. Uh, that's, you know, probably, probably an okay middle of the road varsity team may be what it's like. Because uh, also these kids are probably 15, 16, 17, so it's about the same age. But yeah, it's uh, it's a irregular competition as far as timing and how often, and then not that strong to where you know if a guy can hit 80 and he can't hit 90, you're probably not going to find that out there. So you kind of have to go on faith. Or when he goes to an international tournament, that's where you can really find stuff out. Is there anything? Is there are there studies of which you're aware? Is there any sort of uh, um, uh, established Knowledge about the effects that level of competition for a an amateur player, um, what it, what it, what that does to his future. I know that there are some sort of vague notions. You know, players in the Northeast might have more room for proje- projection, but uh, at the same time, we know that you know a lot. There are a lot of major leaguers who are from you know California, Florida, Texas, etc. Yeah, I don't know if there's been a sort of objective like breaking it down, uh, but I know anecdotally and. I would say strongly enough anecdotally that I'm almost certain there would be objective evidence if you looked into it, that it basically maps to the temperature and how many months out of a year you can play. Uh, because the more you can play, the better the talent and the better the talent, you know, obviously the, the better competition you're facing and the more often you're facing it. And that's why, you know, as you were saying, like sort of Florida, Georgia, Texas, Southern California are like the places where everyone, there's a culture of playing year round. And because of that, the better players tend to show up there. Or if they have the talent, it gets found more quickly or it develops more quickly. You know, the velocity is found and developed earlier in the life. So, you know, there's, I, I would say maybe per capita baseball player, the velocity may not be any different anywhere in the, in the world when you're talking about 25 year olds. But, you know, in the Dominican, you find it at 15 because they sign at 16. And in the Southeast, you find it at 17 or 18 because that's when they're fighting to get scholarships to the SEC or to get um, to get drafted. And then in the Northeast, it's more of a, well, if you throw in the mid-upper 80s, you could probably still go to BC. And then you got three years to figure out how to throw harder than that. Like it's sort of a different sort of timetable and, you know, level of intensity and competition and things like that. Right. I, will, I will add uh, Davidis Nevarowskis from Lithuania. That's right, Lithuania. Yeah, yeah. Uh, currently... Believe uh, played this year uh, split time it looks like between um, between West Virginia in the Sally League and then uh, and then also Bradenton. Yep, and I saw both Davis. of those teams this year, but I just missed them both times. Uh, it, wait, correct me if I'm wrong. Is there is there both a West Virginia in the New York Penn and also a West Virginia in the Sally League? Does that make does that? I believe so. There's a couple like that. There's like six Greenvilles, all in different states in the southeast. Oh, yeah, popular popular town name. And there, yeah, there's I think there's one in the Midwest or out west where there's two teams with the same like city name. Yeah, uh, that was uh, that was good. That was good stuff uh, with regard to Kepler. Thank you. I want to ask you also. You made a you made a comment, uh, interesting comment about C.J. Edwards or Carl Edwards. 
regarding his listed his listed uh, what his dimensions right six to one fifty five and you noted and this is uh, I think this is pretty much accepted that um, you, you you suggested well if he's listed at that then he's probably actually even smaller uh, or at least thinner because teams typically will exaggerate. More towards what the ideal body frame, right? Like Williams' studio is uh, probably both uh, shorter and heavier than he's listed at. He's a small person or a small troll-like man um, <laughs> who plays in the Philly system. He's very Lip, good at making contact, though. Li- lives under a bridge. Yeah, yeah, but whatever he's doing, maybe that somehow his eyesight has become more keen by doing so because he's got great, uh, great contact skills. Um, oh, I should mention every time you say Williams the Studio, I think of the Phil Collins the song Susu Studio. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm glad you do because I I do not all the time, but many of the time. My wife and I recently had a a pretty serious dance fest in our kitchen uh, to Phil Collins Susu <laughs> Studio. It's a great song, it turns out. Um, uh, what is what do you think is the what do you think is the incentive for teams? I know they do it, and I. I have some conjecture. I'm curious. What are you? Why, why would teams lie about listed heights and/or weights? Uh, well, it, it ends up being different for uh, for everybody. So, like, I, I think I've told the story of when I uh, worked for the Yankees. I was writing a report about the GCL version of Jose Tapada, and I wanted, you know, it was like one of my first reports. I wanted to make sure it was right. And the listed height and weight for him in the GCL, which I should remind you, his body looked exactly the same as it does right now was 5'10", 165, and I was like, nope, I am not writing that on here. And then I went to go ask the uh, the trainer. I was like, hey, did you have like a weigh-in yesterday for Tabata? He's like, yeah, it was like 208. It was two-something. Mm-hmm. And I was like, they were off by 40 pounds. <laughs> like, but the way that works is when mo- often until you get on like a 40-man, the height weight for Latin players is what it was the day they signed. That gets put into the like internal MLB system, and there's no like process for updating that unless the team feels like they want to, which is just extra work that somebody's making for themselves. And what you know, who are they doing it for? Anyone that wants to scout the guy can see what he looks like and can guess what his height and weight is. Uh, so yeah, for Latin players, you know, sort of outside the 40 man roster, it's like usually wildly wrong and often on weight and height. And then when you're talking about a guy like that or, you know, Tim Hudson or whatever, that's sort of like a non-desirable body type for his position, there's just like not a lot of, um, uh, like if you were trying to do a study based on the listed height and weights for players, you would get weird results because it's not the accurate <laughs> listed height and weight for players, uh, often. And like, you know, what if like Pablo Sandoval cuts or adds 20 pounds, they're not going to change his height and weight on the MLB, like any of the sites. And he's like an important big leaguer where you'd think that sort of thing would happen. So there's just, there's just no incentive for uh, for people to do it that way, and so they don't. And so there's, like I'm saying, certain groups of players, you can kind of know this is probably a little higher, probably a little lower, based on, you know, sort of the way teams treat inputting that data into the system. Right. And then and then you said it just alternately. So it could either be, it could either be it's, uh, sloth, or, or not sloth, but it's... Uh, well, there's no incentives. There's, there's no, no incentive reason for you to make work for yourself inputting heights and weights when no one else is doing it. Yeah, one I think one notable one uh, I remember where it did the measurements did not appear to match the fellow was uh, Michael Pineda because I think he was at, I think at one point he was on the, the, the pretty slender side and I, I find at Baseball Cube he's actually listed still at six five one eighty uh, yeah. where whereas at Baseball Reference Fangraphs now he's listed at six seven two sixty two sixty five so it's a it's a person who's grown two inches and increased by. 80 pounds and is listed 
uh, his listed dimension. So it could be. And, uh, and he, yeah, he's that general body type, like a Sano, where when you sign him, you're like, we're signing this guy at 16. He will weigh 50 pounds more than this when he is like done growing. And it's sort of, yeah, when it's that sort of body type, that's, you know, you look at Pineda, you don't think, oh, that guy's fat. But then if I told you you have a 260 pound pitcher, you'd be like, no, you don't. <laughs> Why would you have that guy? Right. Right. Yeah. So it's. Um. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And one other question I wanted I wanted to ask you about. You were mentioning with regard to C.J. Edwards. Uh, you were, you know, at one point sort of uh, commending perhaps the the Cubs' decision um, to move him to relief uh, earlier on as opposed to holding on. Now, it seems to me, uh, and you also brought up the example about leaving a player at shortstop, uh, but maybe he had, he should go to third base or something like that. Uh, certainly, one incentive would seem to be that uh, you, well. On the one hand, you retain trade value, right? Because if nothing else, that, that, you know, for a shortstop, that SS is still attached to the player and to his identity. Um, and it happens with catcher a lot too. I know Jesus Montero is one example of that. Right. And, and because there's, there's a sort of value attached to those, to those positional, um, positional assignations. And then the other one is, well, maybe a guy figures it out, right? I mean, um, if you don't necessarily need him right away in the majors, you could say, well, maybe there's something uh, mechanically he's going to figure out, and he'll be able to play that position. Yeah, and yeah, there's. I mean, imagine if they did that aggressively with every player. It seems Detroit wasn't sure that Johnny Peralta was a good. If we keep going back to the Johnny Peralta example, right. but they didn't think he was a great defender. Like Seattle, I don't think thinks Brad Miller's a great defender. I'm sure there's a team out there that thinks he's a defensive everyday shortstop. Uh, so yeah, by doing that, sometimes maybe you're wrong thinking you should move him, and some other team knows that you're wrong and they're willing to trade for him. <laughs> and so you moving him may suggest, oh, he doesn't have the work ethic or he was kind of a dick about it or, you know, like it may suggest something else is wrong and they don't know. So, yeah, there's plenty of reason to do that because there's plenty of, uh like, a subtle thing, like he's a below-average shortstop, no, he's a third baseman. Like, that's, that's there's a continuum. When there's 30 people giving opinions, you're going to get different answers. So why would you take value off the table unless maybe if it's a situation where you've got a guy that you know is a shortstop that you know is a part of your future, then you're taking reps away from that guy. Like, that would be a situation where you'd do it more quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, in general, if there's nothing forcing you to do it, then, yeah, you, you, I would think the the most prudent choice for uh, not knowing what every team thinks about your guys is just leave them there, and then eventually you'll figure out what everybody thinks. I like the idea. I like the idea of a team um, betting on the fact that another that a that a second club ha- has better information than they do, and that's why they leave a player at the position. You're like, well, yeah, we'll leave Johnny Peralta at shortstop because we don't we don't think he's very good, but maybe another team knows he's good, and therefore they will yeah. uh, they will. Um, yeah, we know he's bad. Maybe somebody else doesn't know yet. <laughs> yeah, well, they, yeah, and that's the other one. Um, all right, that's great. That's good. Those were some follow-up questions, Kyler McDaniel. Indeed. Yeah, I'm glad we could glad we could do that. No audio drop as of yet. I was going to say we, we don't have drops for anything. <laughs> producer, producer, still on break. It's a long, more of a leave of absence at this point. A a sabbatical. It may will. be a missing persons report. I think you may be understating. <laughs> yeah, I'll submit that eventually. Uh, let's let's talk about uh, you. You've done a piece. Uh, you did a piece recently, last couple of weeks, in which you uh, you looked at some uh, what would you call it? You looked at some uh, GM prospects, right? And yeah. uh, I think because I think at, at its widest, there's been there's been five vacancies. Does that sound right? I think that's correct. Yeah, I know you've talked about it with uh, with Dave Cameron also, so I don't want to. No, 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 ju- no. But in the meantime, stuff on his feet or shoes or whatever I'm supposed yeah, to. Yeah, to stop touching his, <laughs> taking photos of them and looking at 
looking at dirty photos of his feet. Uh, one one position has been filled, is the point. And it was yes. with a, it was with a player who it was who, not with a player. It was with a person. It was a man <laughs> who did not appear a in your human G, man. Your GM your your GM prospects list, but who was who was maybe a consideration to appear on that list, except you. What you you overlooked? I think you you were surprised maybe by the speed with which he was hired. Yeah, I mentioned in the chat uh, the usually when I'll put up like a team list or a top 100 or uh, you know GM prospect thing, which I I think I did two years ago. Typically, you'll get like I know the people I can ask that will give me some feedback on it, and other people it's like yeah maybe 50 50, maybe a little lower than that they'll answer or have something to say meaning meaningfully. after I put a list up, a lot of times you get better feedback because then <laughs> because then someone it's not like oh it's just some list he's sending around I'll change it who cares I'll get to it now it's like a thing is out and maybe it reflects poorly on the players you drafted and now people are seeing it and then all of a sudden I get feedback and I'm like well I can't change it the day after yeah so after I put the GM article out I got one piece of feedback and it was somebody says hey you should throw David Stearns on there and I was like well. Here's the reason I didn't. Let me explain myself because it's not that I, you know, don't think he's – like I've chatted with him a few times but, you know, not like buddies or anything. But I was like I was trying to put people on there that I think will get sort of mentioned as getting interviews and be in the mix for stuff this offseason because if I just wanted to list all the guys that could be GM, I could list 60 guys and just name all these GMs and all these bright young guys and get everybody on there. But I wanted to keep it, you know, down to like 10 or 11 so I had to pick sort of the very top of the group and people that I knew had connections to teams already and some guys I've been told, yeah, this guy's probably going to get an interview. Like, don't report it, but you can mention that article as likely if you want to. I was trying to keep it to those guys. And uh, that's what I told this guy. And he was like, okay, like, you know, 10-4, gotcha. And then after, uh, and then after Stearns got hired, I, I messaged that guy back and I was like, uh, sorry about that. <laughs> you were right. You're trying to help me. And I told you to knock it off. You, you got me. He was like, yeah, it's just trying to help you. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, so Stearns and, was and I and it just uh, as another piece of color to that. Yeah, uh, that happens every now and then with the draft too, where somebody will tell me like, "Hey, you got so and so going here. Stick him with this team in your mock draft." And then after the draft, that'll happen. And it turns out the guy couldn't like was told not to tell me who that team was taking, whether it's an agent or a scout telling me that, but was trying to like intimate it to me, but didn't do it strongly enough that I took it as this is a done deal. It happened a couple times in the last draft. <laughs> Right, and and they wouldn't they would uh, be hesitant to give a give the full reveal all of the information because and then af- and then afterwards they always tell me so yeah, yeah I have a feeling this tip was uh, I think this person knew he was getting an interview and would probably do pretty well something along those lines uh, so first of all David uh, David Stearns was uh, the, I mean he's he's filled a number of roles given his relative youth um, he's thirty years old he uh, most recently though was working as a I, I think as uh, the assistant GM for the Houston Astros. Um, yes. And I've, I think that um, – let's talk about assistant GMs for a second. He was the only assistant GM with the Astros, I believe. But I also believe – I think I'm right in saying that um, it's not uncommon for teams to have multiple assistant GMs. Do we not have an audio drop for let's talk assistant GMs? <laughs> uh, yes, that is correct. It will, so it varies from team to team. And it's some, that was one of the things I brought up with this guy that mentioned uh, I should put Stearns in the article, is I said it would be a lot easier if all of these teams had the same titles so that you could, like... Because, like, for instance, if I know the guys in a front office, I can tell you 
maybe the team president is a hands-off guy. The GM is the one making the decisions. There's three AGMs, but this is the one that's the number two. And then this guy actually is just like the scouting director, but they had to give him this title so that he wouldn't leave. And then this other guy is more like a special assistant, you know, more of like a stays at home and, you know, comes in every now and then guy. And there are five executive producers. Yeah. And then, yeah. And then, and then there's all kinds of differences, like where you have like, you know, Dombrowski and, and LaRusa both have president of baseball ops while they also have a president, whereas other guys are the actual president and GM. And then there's, you know, presidents like Theo Epstein and then GMs like Jed Hoyer. And then there's GMs where they're just GM and title, but they get to make all the calls and the president doesn't even tell them what to do. And then there's places like Detroit where the owner doesn't make all the moves, but he'll make some of the big moves or like, you know, the angels, like everything is so different. And titles are generally gen, – titles do not always match up with salary, and titles are generally created to either feed someone's ego or make sure another team can't steal them and not always to the function. And once a guy gets sort of important enough, it is much more likely that it, the title is because of uh, because of sort of ego and how it will appear to people outside the office. Does he look important enough? Mm-hmm. Sort of like a – actor getting executive producer like oh you're important enough we'll just give you an extra paycheck because of this thing you said you wanted because you have some leverage uh or it's designed to make sure he doesn't get to interview there's actually i won't say it but there's a team that was notorious for undertitling all their executives uh and then all of a sudden uh for a reason i won't say because it'll give away who it was then they started overtitling all their executives it was just sort of like a competitive choice they made Ooh, ooh, yeah intriguing intrigue i guess uh so uh, so Stearns goes to. So what, what do we know about uh, Stearns' role, or I mean, to the extent his role with the, the Houston Astros as as, an, as a front office member who was the only assistant GM? It seems like he would be pretty obviously the number two in that case. Yeah, okay. and it, w- it was also written that uh, they didn't need a second one because he had enough experience in different areas that he wasn't like. If you look at a guy that's that old, that's a Harvard guy that came from the LRD, the Labor Relations Department with mm-hmm. Major League Baseball, you would think if that's all you knew, you would say, "Oh, he's the rules, paperwork, uh, waivers, like all that stuff, like the administrative things." And and if there, especially if there was another AGM that you knew had a background in scouting, you'd be like, okay, that's the the AGM for office things. That's the AGM for player development, and that's the AGM for scouting. That's and sometimes they'll explicitly be spelled out like that in the title. Um, but when yeah, when you only see one of them and you know he's from LRD, you're like, all right, I know he's, he does the office stuff. And then you kind of start poking around. And you're like, oh, he actually oversees the other stuff too. You don't you don't necessarily have to be a 40 year baseball man to oversee player development. Because uh, actually, I had a conversation with a guy recently where we were talking about a guy that's sort of known in the industry for kind of not being the greatest uh, uh, leader in the world. Mm-hmm. And we were like, the list of things you have to do as in that sort of position is like, uh, don't blindly try to get other people's jobs. Like don't be terrible to subordinates. Uh, don't get in people's way and just sort of generally stay out of the way and smile and, and try hard. Mm-hmm. And we're like, yeah, that's pretty much, that's like the handbook. That's like to not be a terrible person. If you're like director or hire, that's pretty much like the handbook. Like just do that and you'll probably be all right. But for some reason, a bunch of people want to do all those things. So, so that's one of those things where I can't name names, but, uh, but there are some well-known people that maybe even run drafts and have uh, some cred in the industry because they drafted so-and-so. But by the people in the industry and the people that would be giving them or offering them promotions and interviews and stuff, they're seen as, uh, I don't want to work with that guy. Right, just because they're uh, they're difficult people maybe. That and that's that's actually, I remember uh, uh, listening to Dan Harmon's podcast, the guy that uh, wrote Community. And he'll have, he had, um, who was the guy that did uh, Arrested Development? 
Uh, I forgot his name. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about, yeah. But he had him on the show, and, and they were talking about a party where them and a couple other, like, well-known, like, TV and film directors uh, were, like, having a drink, and they were sort of talking about actors. And he goes, I can't tell you what we said, but if you're wondering why so-and-so, who seemed like a star and then wasn't in movies for a long time, it's because at meetings like that, we all decided not to hire him because nobody likes him. And then people would start start asking questions like, well, was it? what about Hayden Christensen? Like, he, he did that movie, and then he was – and they started, like, guessing. It was pretty fun, but – yeah, the the idea is, uh, uh, you know, if if somebody doesn't seem to be getting the dap you think they deserve, there's probably something you don't know. Mitchell Hurwitz is the creator. That's yeah, that's who it was. Mitchell Hurwitz is the creator. Apparently, and also- that actually happened in the comments of the GM article. Some people were saying, "Hey, why isn't so and so who's overseen such and such for this team that's been successful? Mm-hmm. Why isn't he getting any love for this job?" And I was like, oh, "I didn't go in the comments, but uh, usually there's a pretty straightforward answer for questions like that." Right. Yeah, that's right. That's why it's surprising that uh, that Dave Cameron has such an important role with Fangraphs. You know, After all those backroom smoke-filled uh, <laughs> mutants he's had with the Dark Overlord, yeah, he keeps control. Yeah, that's despite right. all of eternal mutinies. He has more. It's a little bit more of a draconian rule uh, the way he's in charge, though. Iron fists and all that. I actually um, got my job when he said uh, the names here are too masculine. Let's get a girl's name in here. <laughs> I know. It, anyway. It's hard. It's hard enough to find a woman to employ. So one solution is just to find uh, men with uh, names that typically belong to women. You wouldn't guess the whitest guy on earth would be an affirmative action hire, but I was. <laughs> yeah, you are. Yeah, you are. You are pretty white. Oh, real white. Yeah. 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 How about this? I was at a uh, we'll say a dimly lit place with a friend, yeah. and I was wearing boat shoes with no socks. And had my my left leg uh, on top of my right knee kind of folded. Mm-hmm. And uh, the person next to me goes, why are you wearing socks with boat shoes? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I'm not, but I can know why you think that. Uh, so what, what is uh, – uh, we know what the Houston Astros have done, of course, under uh, Luna. They've become uh, much more progressive. And uh, I guess some combination of their uh, recent drafts, uh, trades, which have – have netted them a number of quality prospects and, um, and, you know, other, I guess other sorts of um, strategies as they've g- given a good major league roster probably a year or two uh, before one might have otherwise expected. Uh, we know the reputation is, do we expect that David Stearns is going to bring essentially that Houston Astros MO to the Milwaukee Brewers front office? I would imagine he will, because you would say, uh, if you're looking just at like straight resume, like who has the most impressive accomplishments, he probably wouldn't be the choice for GM. Not because he's not accomplished, but because like he doesn't have enough time to say like, oh, I was in charge of a front office and we did such and such a rebuild, because he's you know only been in baseball for like eight years. So if they were looking for a long list of uh, sign so and so, develop such and such, did this trade or whatever, they would probably go with one of the more experienced guys. Uh, so if you're gonna bring in that guy. I'm pretty sure it's because in the interview he says, here's what I want to do. And they're like, oh, that's a very Astro thing to do. That's something we'd like to do here. And then it's probably – and another sort of question a lot of times when there's this sort of uh, hire for a front office is, does he come in and fire everybody and do exactly what he wants? Or does he try to keep some friends, keep around some guys he probably didn't want there, and then kind of maybe neuter his plan a little bit to not step on toes? Uh, or does he do what he wants to do, uh, which is – you. you if you're paying close attention, you can probably see those different approaches in some of the recent and past years GM hires. Some guys like Lunau apparently uh, fired or didn't renew a lot of guys and met a lot of resistance in the industry because I think some people already weren't huge fans of his more analytical approach mm-hmm. of you know 
uh, sort of like from South Park when people just say they took our jabs. It was mm-hmm. sort of like that. Uh, but then now he's winning, and all of a sudden you don't see all of the, you know, sort of BS, like, Mark Appel was allowed on the big league mound, oh my god, like, all that stuff doesn't, doesn't seem to happen anymore when you're, when you're closer to first place. Yeah, that's true. Uh, winning solves a lot of problems. And, so yeah, uh, I guess the, the open question with every new GM is, do they have a strong vision? Is the division different than what was being done before? And if so, are they going to assert that vision immediately and maybe have to expend some political capital and come under, uh, you know, judgment a little more quickly if things don't go well? Or do they try to finesse it, keep on everyone's good side and maybe neuter the vision a little bit and hope they can kind of thread the needle? I would imagine if you're going to hire a guy like Stearns as sort of a bolder choice, uh, he's probably got a bolder plan and is probably going to, you know, enact it. Right, and I mean we have to. I mean, because part of Luna, right? I mean, the, the Astros were bad bef- before he got there, right? And and they were on a bad path. His first couple of years with the club, they were also quite bad, but they were on what was you know perceived to be a good path. Um, the <clears throat> the Brewers, I don't think I don't know if they're exhibiting quite the futility that those Astros teams did in the last years under was that Ed Wade was he the yeah talent talent wise they were seen as about as bad as you can be when Jeff got there uh, right. And they, they had sold off some prospects, and then they got bad, and they hadn't really drafted necessarily that well at the time. Uh, so yeah, it was it was seen as the very bottom of the barrel talent wise. And they and they had stuck they had stuck with some veterans uh, for too long. I think Biggio was it was it, Biggio stuck around for a while. Um, yeah. And uh, they had they had some problems like that. The, the Brewers the Brewers have talent. I mean they have they have what they have Ryan Braun. I guess they don't have Carlos Gomez anymore. Um, but they have a, they have a, they had a good farm that got better with those trades. So they they have some sort of ammo. I wouldn't say it's a bunch of Chris Bryant's and Miguel Sano's on the horizon, but uh you know like that double A team I was talking about with uh, Hauser and Lopez and Phillips and Arcia, you've got you know right there and Michael Reed, you got like five pieces that are you know will play in the big leagues next year. I would imagine that all have sort of everyday upside. So you you'll have some cost controlled talent coming up, which gives you a chance. Right, and then uh and yeah, so so you would expect you'd say. Now we we know one person. Uh, I was going to say you would expect that he's not going not necessarily clean house, but he's going to um, be bringing in or replacing uh, some personnel with with people maybe with whom he feels more comfortable. It seems as though Craig Council will not be one of those uh, individuals. Yeah, it's not my guess. Also, I when I wrote in that GM article uh, that there was buzz that both Ray Montgomery, the VP of Scouting, who got an interview for the GM job, and there were sort of rumors he may have been uh, told, hey, if you know Doug Melvin leaves, you'll have a pretty good shot at this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there was also, I know of at least one other front office executive that was sort of assured by ownership, you're going to be fine. So I know there were at least a couple sort of powerful voices that will be holdovers that you know Stearns can't do anything about. But right. as far as I know, they're you know both good guys. It's not like they'd be problems. But right, well, uh, it's also possible he didn't, he doesn't want to do anything about it too, right? I mean. Yeah, and I, I mean, if I was in that position and I didn't necessarily know these guys and it's not like a total teardown how Houston was when Luna got there, I would take a year and figure out what we have, especially if my mandate was you've got a three- or four-year rebuild. We kind of understand it's going to be like you have a little bit of leeway. I would take that first year when there's no expectations and figure out what I have before I run everybody out and bring in all my guys. And like You, you, need, you, need, you can take advantage of the continuity to sort of figure out where you are because if you bring in all new people, then obviously you got a year or two of just trying to figure out everyone's role and then wondering what the people that left knew that they didn't tell you about and all that kind of thing. I think you cited, uh, I believe recently you cited Ray Montgomery, who was he, director of scouting for Brewers, for the Brewers, right? 
Uh, he's the VP. He was the director of scouting running the draft for the Diamondbacks and then left to go back to the Brewers where he was before the Diamondbacks. He was, I think, assistant director of scouting, and then he came back as the VP. Okay. And it was sort of widely believed he was on the sort of GM track, would sort of be in the mix whenever Doug Melvin stepped aside. You cited him as, as uh, having exhibited uh, one one skill um, in his role, at least running drafts, um, and it was that um, he he's selected a number of of uh, players, amateur players during the draft who had slipped in those drafts for reasons that were not entirely clear. Yeah. Was that right? And and, and I think that you were sort of, maybe you were conducting a, a sort of thought exercise with someone else and say, is there any one strategy that seems to, over a period of 15, 20 years, to lead to better drafts for one club than it might for another club? And you said, well, you know, no, college versus high school, position, you know, position players versus uh, pitchers, maybe not nothing, anything there really. A good mix is wanted, you know, is called for. And but then if there is something, it's not being afraid to select uh, to select amateur prospects whose draft stock has fallen for again for reasons that are not entirely clear. Yeah, and I guess I shouldn't say unclear necessarily because uh, like this past draft, he got Trenton Clark, who I think dropped too far. Uh, I, I figured he was going to go between you know four and twelve, and they got him at fifteen. Um, he has kind of a funny swing. Like that's, I think that's why he slid basically, and is a little bit of a tweener. But I think everyone buys the bat, so it's not like it wasn't going to be enough to profile. And like they took Nate Kirby, there was a medical risk. Uh, but it was a guy that was going to go in the top ten before there was a medical risk, and so getting him for, uh, I don't know, somewhere close to slot money, like forty five. It's like, yeah, I, I wasn't a big Kirby fan, but at that point, that seems like a good gamble. And like Cody Ponce was the guy after that, and he was pitching in D2, and his stuff wasn't quite as good as it was on the Cape, and so people got a little less excited about it and didn't seem against good competition this year. That's why he dropped. Is that a good reason? I'm not sure, but it's it's uh, it's not it's not like he hasn't hit before in his life, but he has power. Like that's a good reason to drop. But like, oh, we haven't seen any good good hitters yet. Like that's not necessarily a great reason. And like Demi Remoloy, the Canadian slugger they took in the fourth round, was seen as a like a first or second round kind of guy and hit pretty well at all the different events. And then the spring even hit pretty well, but his hitting mechanics would kind of vary. And it's like, okay, he still hit pretty well. We've all seen him hit well against good pitching. He was on the same team as Josh Naylor and didn't embarrass himself. Like the stats were in the same ballpark. Uh, if the hitting mechanics are the problem we may be able to fix that. And he's got, I mean, he's got first or second round sort of physical tools. And like when they took Braden Shipley in Arizona, he was seen as like a top six to eight to maybe 10th overall prospect. And they got him around 15th. It was unclear why he dropped. Uh, he was relatively new to pitching and was still kind of raw. So I guess that was probably the reason, but that in a lot of ways, that was a feature and not a bug because you're like, Oh, he's got all kinds of upside. He just started pitching. Uh, so there's like, I guess a long history of him, taking guys that were seen sort of consensus-wise or media rankings-wise or just sort of raw talent-wise as better players. Uh, and then the teams that didn't take those guys maybe are like, oh, we take high school right-handers or, you know, we take high upside whatever and maybe reached a little bit and just saw a guy sliding a little bit and uh, kind of steered away from it. And I've, I guess I've been in enough sort of situations where uh, you'll see sort of a momentum play where maybe there's a little bit of... Uh, I remember when Jabba Chamberlain slid in the draft. Everyone thought he would go like 10 or 15, and then the Yankees got him, I think, like 35 or something. And it was like, well, there's a little bit of concern about his knee. There's like a little bit of concern uh, about his elbow, but it, he's throwing fine, and uh, he just started sliding. And I think some of the teams in the late 20s didn't really do a lot of homework on him because I think they were thinking if he gets this far, he's going to want too much money or he's going to be really injured, so we don't need to... And then, you know, at some point a team has to step in and with some confidence and say, no, no, this guy should have gone somewhere around 15, which, you know, in that case he probably should have. 
So maybe you're thinking it's not uh, right. So does that, and you also thought maybe uh, it seems like not being dogmatic about your your sort of draft selections. Is yeah, I think I think it's preparation and confidence because I I could imagine if you were put in charge of a draft and you make like a you're picking twentieth and you've got like a one through twenty list and then all of a sudden your eighth overall player is there at twenty and he's he asking for slot money you start looking around like why is this guy here what do we not know like you can imagine that situation where you're like this could be the pick that defines you know my career or gets me hired or fired or extended or whatever. Uh, do I want to pick a guy that a bunch of people just passed on? Is that the kind of thing I want to do? Or do I want to take the guy that's 15th on my list that we were hoping would get here because we thought realistically that's the guy we would get? Uh, yeah, I mean, you can see sort of a... Uh, so, and that's also why you can see that making the pick shows an unusual amount of confidence and preparation to be ready for that situation and say, yeah, we like this guy. We're not going to worry that people are passing. We're right and they're wrong. Yeah, That's great stuff, Kylie. Oh, I know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm also feel, the, I'm the most humble guy on this podcast. Do you feel like you fulfilled anything? Uh, I feel like, maybe. Yeah. yeah. If you stretch it, I'd say yeah. Yeah, I think you've maybe you've fulfilled your obligation to Fangraphs Audio. If you were to slip in a few drops, I'd feel even more even more confident about that. You know what I have been doing recently is taking ear drops because I'm an adult who gets ear infections. And that's uh, that's also the kind of uh, coffee you get, right? Is the eardrop? No, it's, I told you it's post nasal drip. Oh, sorry. Actually, I think I I think I might have. Uh, you ever do any uh, armchair diagnosis work by like using W or WebMD or anything like that? Oh, I don't even use that, but I do plenty of diagnosing. Yeah. What? What, what do you use instead? My brain and my oh, gut. Oh, your brain. Mostly my gut. <laughs> it's uh, I mean, it's a frightening endeavor. Usually, you end up with uh, cancer rates. Oh, so you've always got cancer, yeah. Yeah, but. Uh, I actually have been doing some. This is not cancer level, but I, ble- I believe uh, I believe I might have a deviated septum. What, oh. do, you think, what do you think about that? Uh, I had not diagnosed you as such, so I, I would have, really question that. I used to have a <laughs> regular septum. If that doctor knows what he's doing. All of a sudden, the eighth overall prospect is there, and you're like, "Ooh, does this doctor know what he's saying about deviated septums?" No, but I I did that. I said that to myself. I have a I have a I have an appointment on uh, Friday. We'll determine for sure what the issue is. But yeah, I believe I have a sinus infection. From your from your checkup? Huh? Can we do a live podcast during your checkup? We can periscope it. <laughs> yeah, I want to. I want to be on location. Wait, is Periscope a real thing still? Does it still exist? Yeah, I still haven't used it, uh, but I'm definitely curious. Could you do it for? What if you did it for like, um, I don't know, some sort of game? What if you brought it to Arizona Fall League? Well, I think Jupiter would be good because it's like a bunch of like, uh, like chain link fences, or you can get you know pretty close to the action. What? When is Jupiter? Uh, actually, I got it on my my schedule here. I believe it's late October. Okay. Yeah, Diamond Club is 16th through 18th. Yeah. And then the Dominicans work out on the 21st. 21st. And then Jupiter is 21st through 26th. 21st through 26th. Hmm. Oh, sorry, it's not the DPL. I have it listed as the IPL is the one doing the workout. Uh, and then what do you do? Are you going, you going, you going to Arizona Fall League? Yeah, I'll go right after that. So it'll be like around November 1. All right. Let's, let's days. play, cause I, I want to do that again with you. Let's play in that trip, uh, after we say, after we say goodbye. Let's, by, uh, by the way, how would you describe the flavor profile of the post nasal? No, drug? come on, it's it's gross. It's gross. It's unpleasant. It gives me cough. It gives me uh, chronic cough. It's uh, it's nutty and uh, no, it's yeah. not. No, don't come on. I don't want to talk about phlegm. Talk about mucus. A hint of boogers. No, it's boogers. It is boogers. Just it a is son. <laughs> Kylie. Yeah. It's been a real pleasure. 
Um, did you know I'm the lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs.com? It's Kyle McDaniel, lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs.com. Carson Stooley. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Pew, pew, pew.